0: And then we'll jump in. This comes from Shomer Israel, the guard, the guardian of the Jewish people. <laughs> friends. Today is the Rambam versus the Ravid. The Rambam versus the Raivid. Everything the Rambam says, the Raivid seeks to contradict. It reminds me of this old joke. <laughs> um, what is the absolute Jewish proof that God exists? It's the very first halacha in the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, and the Raivid doesn't argue with him. <laughs> so uh, that's an old uh, yeshiva joke, which you might not find funny. But the idea that the Rivet argues everything on the Rambam and the fact that Rambam says God exists and the Rivet doesn't argue is clearly the proof that God exists. So um, friends, is God something or no thing is our debate today. What does it even mean to seek God? Where can we find God? What does that even feel like or look like? Every spiritual seeker, Crave some kind of contact and connection. We might even say that joy in life, the highest happiness is found in contact or connection on the bodily sensual realm, how we think about food, how we think about hugs or kisses or sexual relations, on the emotional cognitive realm, how we think about peace of mind or being connected to truth or having deep relationships and conversation On a spiritual level, how we think about connectedness to the oneness, to the oneness of reality. Every spiritual seeker uh, craves this type of contact and connection. In Jewish thought, of course, there's not one soul, but five. The ruach, the nefesh, the neshama, the yechida, the chaya, all these different channels towards connection. Friends, is a personal relationship with the divine even possible? forget just a momentary connection or a sustained meditative connection, but a relationship? If so, can we connect through our flesh and our words, or must we transcend the body, transcend words, and travel into a different spiritual realm beyond the conscious? Of course, no one knows for sure. Many many strains of Jewish thought teach that we know little about what God is, There have been great debates about the nature of God and what we can actually know and even attempt to speak about. The Rambam, Maimonides, believe that we cannot talk about what God physically is at all, but only about what God is not, an approach known as negative theology. And he even argued that it is heretical to believe that God has a body. He writes over here in the Guide for the Perplexed, know accordingly, You who are that man know that when you believe in the doctrine of the corporeality of God or believe that one of the states of the body belongs to him, you provoke his jealousy and anger, kindle the fire of his wrath, and are a hater, an enemy, and an adversary of God, much more so than an idolater. Whoa, Rambam's got fighting words. Oh my goodness, Rambam, kill out. He is fired up here. Friends, when the Torah speaks consistently of God's body parts, such as in the Pesach story, an outstretched arm, and of emotions such as anger, only a fool in Rambam's view doesn't know that it is a pedagogical metaphor. The Rambam explains in the commentary to the Mishnah, the removal of materiality from God signifies that if this unity is neither a body nor the power of a body, nor can the accidents of bodies overtake him. Such as motion and rest, whether in the essential or accidental sense. It was for this reason that the sages denied to him both cohesion and separation of parts. When they remarked, no sitting and no standing, no division and no cohesion. And the prophet said, and unto whom will you liken me that I may be like, says the Holy One. If God were a body, then he would be like a body. Wherever in the scriptures God is spoken of with the attributes of material bodies, like motion, standing, sitting, speaking, and the like, all these are figures of speech, as the sages said. The Torah speaks in the language of, of men. Torah, Debra, Kalash, and But People have said a great deal on this point. This third fundamental article of faith is indicated by the scriptural expression, for you have seen no likeness. Ie you have not comprehended him as one who possesses a likeness for as we have remarked he is not a body nor a bodily power friends part of what might have been at stake perhaps was the inconsistency between basic jewish ideas and a fundamental tenet of much earlier of much earlier christianity Jews for centuries had already wanted to push back against the Christian idea of divine incarnation. The theory of divine incarnation developed in different forms, beginning early in the history of Christianity, holds that God could exist in the flesh in the form of Jesus, who has been portrayed within classical Christianity as a divine human of sorts. The notion that God can exist in a physical realm and that anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism is more than just a didactic tool, could perhaps have been viewed by some Jewish medieval philosophers as getting too close for comfort to the Christians who often proselytized, not only through persuasion, but also by use of the sword. Now, the other side, friends, Rabbi Moshe Taku, a Tosafist, asserts the opposite view that we should take the Torah literally and should understand God as sometimes taking on human form. For Rabbi Taku, it would be heretical not to read the Torah literally. More famous even than Rabbi Taku was the Rivid who strongly disapproved of Rambam's characterization of corporealists as heretics. Whatever the rivid the rivet's own view of divine corporeality might have been. He rejected the idea of the view that those such as the Kabbalists with whom he associated were necessarily heretical apicorsis, just because they described the divine identity as having corporeal aspects. So once again, the rivet is not arguing for corporeality, he is he is defending the Kabbalists as being apicorcine, as being. As being, as being heretics because they engage in the spherote where they engage in some form of multiplicity or some form of physicality. Of course, p- part of the problem of physicality is that it, appri- it applies finitude and it also applies multitude. So he argued that quote unquote, greater and better people than Rambam were corporealists who embraced a model of divinity that engages anthropomorphic manifestations. He's probably pointing to Rashi, because here's what Rashi's commentary on the Torah says. My hand, it says in the Torah, yad mamash, an actual hand with which to smite them. When it says that God used God's hand to smite the Egyptians, Rashi says, a literally a hand. There is far more to say about the countless rabbinic commentators who strongly reject corporeality and the many, although fewer, who defend literal corporeality. As just one example, we can see the tension between their respective perspectives that played out in the debate as to how humans are created in God's image. What does it mean that humans are in God's image? What aspect of God's image are we talking about here? Physical? Spiritual? intellectual, or something else. Indeed, although it is rarely quoted, a minority traditional view suggests that what makes humans godly is precisely the physical form. In any event, it can suffice to say that there is a rich Jewish debate about corporeality. And as is not uncommon for many medieval philosophers, the intellectual battle became so pitched that their rhetoric approached a level at which, as we demonstrated above, fighting words are involved. The focused issue about divine corporeality raises a broader philosophical question for us. Is God something or not a thing? There is an inherent contradiction in the idea that God is nothing. On the one hand, that can mean that God is now actually something since nothing is conceptually something. On the other hand, one can say that nothing is no thing, the absence of a thing. Consider the gaps or pauses between spoken words. Are those gaps nothing or no thing? Or are they something? Or consider the taste, of the hole in a donut or a bagel. Is the hole of a bagel or a donut something? On the one hand, there's nothing there. On the other hand, the bagel or donut loses its identity without that hole. The hole is paramount to the identity of the bagel and to the donut. A shadow similarly requires another object to be cast. Is a shadow, then, merely the absence of light? Or is the shadow something? And the color white, on the one hand, is technically not a color at all. Rather, it is the absence of color. So is white actually no thing? And so the idea of God as something, it as nothing, is indeed a paradox. In philosophy, we talk about dialetheism, the idea that both sides in a contradiction are indeed true or at least that they can be true. Of course, even from a dialetheistic approach, some contradictions should be rightly accepted merely as contradictions where one side must be wrong. Yet others are simply unavoidable contradictions where both opposites are true. This is the case with statements about the nature of God, a being whose name reflects The actuality of being, even while we cannot begin to grasp what it means to be an entity who existed before any element of the universe had come to be. A deity that we in some way experience and even feel in the physical world, but that we also recognize as not being physical in any way. Basic to Jewish tradition is the recognition of a danger inherent in conceiving of God as a physical entity. Such a mistaken mode of thinking is inherent in an idolatry in which the infinite is represented within the finite confines of a physical object, perhaps best exemplified by the sin of the golden calf, the egel zahav. But even as we recoil when we encounter someone who seems to worship an embodied deity, we should still be troubled by the ease with which some are willing to label others as heretics. Rabbi Nathaniel Helfgott writes in his essay, the words heretics and heretical have often been invoked on a whole range of issues in the ideological battles within Orthodoxy in the last two centuries. It is important to note that most of the leading lights of the last two generations have rejected the application of the term apicorus to various people who were led to their conclusions based on sincere reading of the sources. The roots of this perspective are in the famous comment of the Rivid that while the Rambam considered anyone who believed in a corporeal God, a rejection of one of the essential pillars of the faith, according to Rambam, as a heretic, there were many great people who came to that erroneous conclusion from their reading of Tanakh and Chazal. And thus, while they were wrong and the idea should be rejected, the person was not to be read out of the community. This trend was further developed by the perspectives of Rav Kook and the Chazon Ish that saw in the modern zeitgeist a period of hiddenness of God and intellectual coercion that neutralized the category of apikores as a, as a, as a live halacha category. <laughs> you know, I'm reminded when I naively... Um, arrived in Scottsdale, which is not to claim, I'm, I'm still not naive, but my, in my increased naivete, when I arrived, in my first year here in Scottsdale, I, I went to an ultra-Orthodox synagogue. And at, at, at Kiddush, I viewed the, this ultra-Orthodox rabbi as a thought partner. Oh, a rabbi and a rabbi, let's talk theology, wonderful. And I said to him, I shared with him an idea of process theology I had just read. And I thought he might agree or disagree. And what he said, he looked me in the eyes, and he said, rabbi, but rabbi in a way to mean, I don't view you as a rabbi, but I, I, I emphasize the word rabbi um, to put up an extra barrier. It's kind of a rabbinic politics. It's hard to explain. If you've ever seen an ultra-Orthodox rabbi call what they view a non-Orthodox rabbi as rabbi consistently, they're trying to emphasize, they're calling them rabbi in a kind of a political sense. And he said, rabbi, what you've just said is complete apicursus. And then he walked away. He said, what well, you just said was complete heresy. I said, "Wow! I thought this was a thought partner. And, uh, and, and he, he rejected uh, the, the thought experiment I had shared with him um, as heretical, and that the conversation needed to end. So friends, indeed, we can appreciate the intensity of belief that leads some people to speak in inflammatory tones about others who disagree with them. But as we come to our own philosophical convictions, we can resolve to talk respectfully as we engage in theological debates. In Rabbi Dr. Daniel Hartman's recent book, which he spoke about at VBM just a few years ago, right when the book came out, he argues we should, quote unquote, put put God second, how to save religion from itself. Here he contends that God wants us to make human dignity primary and to view our obligation to honor God as secondary. To apply such an idea here, God would want us to argue theology with a level of respect that makes the first priority of our discourse being about menschlechite. This idea is seen in the shift in the writing and even the thinking of Rabbi Yonah Gerundi, who earlier in his career had a very negative view of much of Rambam's thinking and who arrogated to himself a license to, to level ad hominem attacks against him. After seeing that his style of speech seemed to have led to the public burning of the Rambam's books, which in turn might have helped to bring about the public burning of many copies of the Talmud, Rabbi Yonah humbly repented and resolved to seek penance for speaking harshly about the Rambam. And in the 20th century, the Chazon Ish would argue that since the presence of God in the world was not evident to his contemporaries in the way that he was apparent at Mount Sinai, observant Jews should no longer view non-observant Jews as heretics, he argued. That view of thinking would apply, he argued, to those who knew God yet still rejected him, in his view. In, this ta- in his time, which was basically our time, relatively speaking, he argues many grow up having no understanding of or relationship to God at all. If such an approach is appropriate in the realm of observance, all the more so with regard to theology, we can unhash the implications of of this approach uh, in our conversation, friends. We should channel our fervency in our fighting over the nature of God in interreligious and intra religious conflicts towards searching more deeply for God. One one more comment before we go to Deepak Chopra, which is which is that I would love if we fought if we fought over theology. Today we fight over over political ideology. We fight over political denominationalism. We fight over uh, you know, the, the, uh, Zionism. I would love if we fought if we got so fiery about, about theology again, um, of course, with limits. OK, Deepak Chopra. He says, everything we experience as material reality is born in an invisible realm beyond space and time, a realm revealed by science to consist of energy and information. The invisible source of all that exists is not an empty void, but the womb of creation itself. Something creates and organizes this energy. It turns out, it turns the chaos of quantum soup into stars, galaxies, rainforests, human beings, and our own thoughts, emotions, memories, and desires. It is not only possible to know this source of existence on an abstract level, but to become intimate and at one with it when this happens, our horizons open to realities. We will have the experience of God. And so even while we search for divine connection, we should recall what the Kutzker Rebbe said famously, that we are all lying, we are all imposters, the Kutzker Rebbe said. He argued that none of us knows the truth, none of us knows God, and that we are all fakes with our convenient certainties. This is yet another reminder of why we should not debate too fiercely about the nature of God. Although I am promoting debating the nature of God, just not too fiercely. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter taught compassion is the foundation of belief. For a person who isn't compassionate, even the belief in God is a kind of idolatry, right? So he's saying we should debate theology, but if we do so without compassion, that belief of God is itself idolatrous. Because compassion, if we believe in God in Judaism, that means that belief is so infused with compassion in all of our discourse. So rather than debate God, we should become godly. And so we can, to conclude, can we still appreciate the, middle, the medieval debates as such? The nature of theology in the medieval era might have been different than it is today. But we can still draw inspiration from the fervent battles for truth in which giants of thought, such as the Rambam and the Rivan engaged. We can and perhaps must read the words that they used to describe their respective conceptions of God and, empowered by the energy of their faith, go on to defend the existence of God through our actions. So friends, that is my presentation for debate four. And I'm now going to pause. Um, and I see a first question here in the chat from Michael, or it might be from Jenny. Uh, raise your hand, which one of you wrote that? OK, Michael, Mike. A question is, did God create humans, that man, in his or her image? Or did man create God in man's image? OK, I love it. And I'll share with you a, br- a brilliant Hasidic insight that emerges here. Um, So of course, the modern psychologists argue, um, of course, humans created God in our own image. Everything we create in our own image, all of human projection emerges from the subjectivity of the mind. And thus many of them, in fact, I recently read this, um, only 25% of scientists themselves embrace some form of theism. In any case, psychologists in the soft science also understands We know nothing of God. Thus, there's probably an atheistic commitment because we ourselves create God in our own image. Now, the the Hasidic thinkers, um, or the particular ones I'm relating to here, agree. They agree that humans are created in the image of God. And then they agree that God is created in our image because of course, of course, God is. How could God not be? But then they say the projection of God that emerges from the human mind is itself true because that projection emerges from our own Selim The projection emerges from our own godliness, and thus it is is itself a divine projection, and thus it represents truth. And so he says, yes, both are true. It is true that humans are created in the image of God. It is true that that God is created in humans' image, and it is precisely the first theological commitment which makes qualifies the psychological commitment as such that, um, that brings the two together. So thank you for that, that great question. So, okay, let's hear from someone else. Uh, and Pam, if you can monitor the Facebook live chat as well uh, for the folks who wanna ask over there. Okay, let me share one other thing while folks are thinking. Um, As you know, there's a middle ground between um, the Maimonidean rationalist approach, the, the notion that God is not in the world, God is not manifest in the physical world, and the pantheistic approach of Spinoza that essentially equates world with God, nature with God. God is world, world is God, nature is God, God is nature, and nothing beyond. And of course, that middle approach in Jewish mysticism is panentheism. You just put in that E-N in there. Um, you put the E-N in there into panentheism, And that suggests that God is within everything, but also beyond everything. God did, did create the world, but is still beyond the world as well. And that is the way that Jewish mystics kind of uh, balance that middle ground of um of pantheism uh, and of monotheism. More to say on that, but I want to pause again for thoughts and questions.
1: Roshmuli, what you just said seems to be in line with what Deepak Chopra said, uh, you know, in that the, you know, out of nothing was created the stars and the galaxies and the people and everything like that, Uh, and that's consistent with the Kabbalistic thinking of the Ein Sof, of the no-thingness manifesting through the Ten Spherot. Uh, So I see a great deal of uh, parallelism in in, uh, the Jewish mystical thought and in the description you last gave of panentheism.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. I love that, and, and and I totally agree with you, David. And you know, it's interesting that um, you know the a, a, a few phrases. If you're not familiar, I'll put them on the side over there. There's yesh, there's yeshmeayin. Uh, sorry, I wrote that wrong. Yeshmeayin, and then there's yeshmeyesh. Yesh. And um, this is one of the great debates in theology that essentially the Greeks argued for Yesh, me yesh that that everything was created from something. And the Jewish theologians kind of rejected this, an uh, argument of yesh ma'ayin, that everything was created from nothing. That's yesh ma'ayin. Um, and, uh, and then they go further about the ayin as it relates to the yesh after that. Yesh ma'ayin, and then ayin me'yesh. Um, uh, as, as such that, um, that it is impossible for God to exist within the physical realm Um, once again, because idolatry would mean making the infinite finite. And anything finite that is godly um, is thus a container uh, that would limit God. That's the problem with the golden calf. And yet, in the Deepak Chopra model and in the Ein Sof model here, we see this idea of sparks of godliness, kind of divine manifestations, or the Shekhinah, which is not God, but is godliness, that moves God beyond thingness into the infinite realm in a way um, that Deepak Chopra said so well, uh, that is energy, is contact, is connection, is perhaps relationship of something beyond, but once again, is no physical thing. Um, but is still within the phenomenal phenomenological realm of human experience. OK, Cheryl writes, was it radical thought to see God in human form, as opposed to other religions worshiping animals idols as all powerful gods. Thank you for that amazing question. Also, um, yes. So this is really amazing. You know, in my own spiritual development, I initial initially, and excuse my um, excuse my my dismissal. I thought hit, religions like Hinduism were just absurd. I thought. Uh, that tribes I visited in Africa were absurd, how they danced around statues. They thought the statue was God. They worshiped the statues. I really had no understanding of what what this could possibly be. Perhaps it was my own insecurity of how I viewed my own faith. And then in my own development, and part of it was experiencing the Kotel, because there was a time I was not a Kotel Jew. Then there was a time I was a Kotel Jew. And at the Western Wall, seeing what was happening there was Nobody thought God was the wall or God was in the wall, but rather that the wall was a channel. There was a historical experience at the wall that gave an energy to a space, a historical energy that could be related to. And so too in Hinduism or in these tribal uh, religions where they understand that there can be an energy in physicality. The the Lubavitcher Rebbe has this famous vort where he talks about praying through his shtender praying through his lectern, that, that his, the physical lectern that he's, he's holding onto is physically a channel towards the divine. And so something really radical happened there, and it happens in the Israelites' rejection of the Egyptians, their rejection of Egyptian idolatry, even though they're all confused about their own re- uh, religion, and their, their rejection of the Egyptian notion of animals as gods um, or as all-powerful gods, as we see in Egyptian uh, theology, not to mention a, a, as we see in Greek mythology, um, a, a, as that emerges, um, whether Jews are influenced by Greek philosophers rejecting that mythology um, or beyond, and so most certainly this was very radical. This was very radical. Once again, Plato argues that um, that uh, that monotheism uh, is a rejection of moral relativism because if there's multiple gods, there's multiple truths. Judaism believes in singular truths. Uh, even if there's dialectical nature to that, Uh, and thus monotheism is a commitment um, uh, to a rejection of of moral relativism. Uh, It's not just this God is battling that God, and there's no different truth between this God. The the God that's most true is the God that wins in battle. And so this was very radical to reject this. Um, It's also a rejection, uh, as we saw in Christianity, of divine incarnate, but also of the pharaoh as godly and it also places limitations upon the mashiach because in some theologies the mashiach themselves the messianic figure is a divine incarnate to some degree even the rebbe is the the notion of the rebbe in Hasidic thought gets very close to the idea of the rebbe as a channel to god you pray through the rebbe right this is if you've been to these Hasidic atishes i imagine most of you haven't but I, I've been to many of these Hasidic tishes. If you're a woman, most certainly you haven't. But many of these Hasidic tishes I've been to in the old city of Jerusalem or beyond. Hundreds of Hasidic men in bleachers and the Rebbe at a table in the center. They are literally davening through this Rebbe as a channel in a way that we think of as Christian. So Stan writes, Ellie Wiesel said that God was suffering with the Jews in the camps. How do we maintain our faith in a God who suffered with us but was unable or unwilling to relieve us from suffering. I love it, Stan. This is debate number eight. Class number eight is going to be theodicy, and it's going to be Eli Wiesel putting God on trial. It is Abraham versus God. It is Job versus God. It is Eli Wiesel and those in his concentration camp putting God on trial. That is going to be debate class number eight. So thank you for that. This, this this will be very crucial. And of course, it intersects with our conversation today. If God is personal, if God is powerful, if God is in the world, what does that even mean about God being benevolent? So we're going to, we're, we're not going to punt that as not being an important question. We're going to amplify that as an important question and give it its own session. Okay, we're back to David.
1: So um, Gershom Sholem is a 20th century author, academic and writer uh, about uh, modern mysticism, wrote in his book uh, called Modern Trends in Jewish Mysticism. He likened the, the sof to the sap of a tree and the tree to the universe. So in other words, the sof the source of everything, uh, flows through and manifests itself uh it flows through the universe sort of as the sap flows through a tree and manifests itself in the trunk the branches the leaves the fruit of the tree so in the way that we've been talking we would say well all the things in the universe are the manifestations of the tree. They're all different. The fruit is different from the leaves, which is different from the uh, branch and, you know, the thorn and all these different things. Those are all of us and everything in the universe that is different. But what are we comprised of? Says Sholem, we're comprised of the sap. In fact, we are the sap. Uh, We just, in in our manifest form, we look different. And so, Uh, so we are, so one way to look at this is that we are the godliness manifested here in the universe and our actions are in a way, God acting in the world. So, in answer to Stan's question, why didn't God come and save us? Well, because nobody came and saved us.
0: Until David, they did. very powerful, David. So, so what? Do, so, just to understand that idea a little further, does um, uh, in, in Shalom's thought, is is there anything beyond the tree, or is the tree the extent of reality? What what, what would he call that which is not is not not part of the tree?
1: Well, he would just he would call it the sap, then that spawns another universe. I would guess, but you have to understand that the tree is the entire universe in his view. Okay, okay? Yeah. so so the sap of this tree uh, could fuel the sap of a different universe as well. Yeah, beautiful. I'm projecting. Beautiful. I don't re- I don't remember reading that.
0: Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so it's so you
1: know, it's, pan, but- so it's
0: yeah, yeah, love it, love it. You know, one of my favorite um, lines of Gershon Shalom, I'm sure you've heard it before, David, is, uh, is when people ask him if he believe, believes everything he records in, from the Kabbal- from the Kabbalistic tradition. And he says, narishkeit is narishkeit, like uh, silliness is silliness, but the study of narishkeit is scholarship. <laughs> I love that line, which is the study, some things he doesn't believe, but the study of things he doesn't believe is scholarship right? In any case, um, it's very insightful what you shared there, and I thank you for that. And what part of what I want to promote here is I want us to think about God more. I want us to debate about God more. I want us to study this. I don't want us to just fall into simple dogmas, either that there's no God or God looks like this. I I want us to think about this more. I think there's so much more. I think this this is where Jewish education failed us. It, it, It gave us no God education. We we received Israel 101, Hebrew 101, anti-Semitism 101, how to lane from the Torah 101, and we, we were given no spiritual imagination to have any kind of discourse for this. And in talking about it, debating it, I want us to have tolerance and think about, uh, not fall back into the old tropes of uh, of, uh, of of heresy blaming and the like. Um, and, uh, and I think that this is a, a contribution that Jews can make to the world. I think Jewish theology is remarkably broad. When you, when, you know, as, as everyone famously says, oh, the, the student went to the rabbi and said, I reject God. And the rabbi says, well, tell me about the God you believe in. And he says this and that. And the rabbi says, I also reject that God, right? So, which is to say that the, the, the realm of Jewish theologies is so broad that we can reject, we can be atheists, so to speak, by rejecting multiple accounts of what God is, and then find our own theology that does speak to us. And I think that theology is much broader. And I would love to see us have brainstorming sessions, think tanks, again, to think about God education. Okay, to go to Michael's comments here. Is the search for God part of our search for meaning in the infinity of time and space? I absolutely think so. I think that's an amazing question. And I think that our search for our own Um, connection to eternity, our own philosophical understanding of infinity, our fundamental relationship to time and space, to me is fundamentally a question also about the bonfire that our spark returns to. It's fundamentally a question of what is the reality beyond the objective reality we experience and beyond our personal subjective reality that we encounter. What is the unreachable, the unreachable beyond what we can reach for, the unknowable beyond what we know? And um, I think we can do more than just say we don't know it. I think we can have humility to say we don't know it. But then I think we can learn from different perspectives, from text and from conversation and from spiritual experimenting uh, to add more data to that which we don't know. So what I th- what I want to push back against is, is, this, is the 15-year-old, and I'm no beef with the 15-year-old. 15-year-old is great. Who looks out the window of the school bus and says, is there a God? Uh, nope. Like kind of a based on nothing like I don't really have data or this is a fad of my day. I'm going to reject it. Um, towards something that embraces, as Mike is saying there, with the ultimate human searching for meaning. Yehuda. Yehuda, I'm putting you on the spot. I want to hear from you, Yehuda. I know you're engaged in. uh, I know you're engaged in um, uh, new age renewal Judaism. I wonder how you're thinking about about this question. If you're comfortable sharing,
2: um, I don't know. The question, as I'm listening to the discussion, is opening the door to so much in specific specific, uh, and does all this questioning erode the faith? Does it undermine where we're trying to go? Because I think there's all these different opinions and if we say you get a gold star and you get a gold, everybody gets a gold star. It's like, are, are we really weighing things and coming to a good consensus? And, and, and are we bringing the tribe where we wanna go?
0: Yehuda, this is such a great question. Uh, and am I, am I cutting you off?
2: No, no, that's, that's, that's my question. <laughs>
0: Yehuda <laughs> David, thank you for that. Because I have the same question about the VBM's pedagogical approach. VBM's pedagogical approach assumes, by and large, that our learning can and must, in ways that we can't estimate or deliberate, um, uh, uh, lead to action, right? Uh, and that assumes now. Now Plato was wrong. Plato thought that the the more uh, the, the person who knows more will, will will be more virtuous. If you The person who knows the good will do the good. We know this to be wrong empirically. So it's not just about study more, you'll be better, right? The question is, how do we learn where we do better in the world? How does learning about injustice lead people to engage in more social justice? How does um, learning about ethics en- enable people to act more ethically? That's a question about ethics. Now, in spirituality, how does thinking about issues of theology or spirituality lead to deeper engagement. And it's not clear to me that it necessarily does. I know academics who are ethicists who are unable to either, I don't want to say act unethically because that's a little bit too harsh, but unable to actually take a stand. They're unable to take a stand because they're so caught in the footnotes, right? So too, I know people who study theology and think about spirituality who have become so skeptical in their thinking that it's almost impossible to turn off the questioning in their spiritual engagement. So I think you're exactly right to ask the question, which is how do we cultivate an intellectual experience alongside an activist experience? How do we cultivate an intellectual experience alongside a spiritual commitment in a way that they enhance each other rather than diminish each other. Am I getting your question correct?
2: Yes, yes. And it's like, how how do we make room for this idea of agnosticism and atheism and still be proponents for Hashem?
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, it reminds me of that old joke, and I'm gonna use your name just because people always use different names. So if you don't mind, uh, Yehuda and David, uh, Yehuda and David uh, go to shul, and 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 then uh, and then someone says, Yehuda, I know why David goes to shul. David goes to pray, but why, Yehuda? Why do you go to shul? And Yehuda says, I go to talk to, to David right? That's to say, some people go to Shul to Davin. They want to talk to God. And, and some people go to talk to the guy who's talking to God, right? And thankfully, we can make room for both in Shul, those who go for a social experience and those who go for a spiritual experience. But actually, some people, their Jewish experience is the questioning of God, right? They they feel that by going there and saying, I don't believe in this stuff anyways, that in somehow that is their Jewish experience, the kind of growing up with a a Jewish identity of, of pushing back, right? And um, and that is one type of Jewish identity. I, there's the Jewish spiritualist who immerses, Yehuda David, I would put you in that category, who immerses, I, I don't want to put you in a box, but based on what you're saying. And then there's the type who precisely wants to be in relationship to the, to, to the immersivists, if I can make up that word, but also wants to be in relationship to them as a, um, a pushing back, like I'm here, but I'm not really here. I'm at High Holidays, but this book really, really, this book is kind of all problematic, anyways. But I have to be here holding the book, right? Because it's meaningful to be here holding the book, even though I don't believe in the book, you know. And so that it's interesting that 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 I, I v, VBM wants both of those types in this in this learning, like, and that's hard to contain. But so so I really appreciate your point. Let me pause there. Let me pause here for, to, hear, to hear from others. We have only four minutes left, but I'd love to hear. Eileen, Eileen, can I call on you over there? Eileen Gross, if you're able to unmute, if you want to unmute, or Vicki, Vicki Cabot. Okay, no pressure if you don't want to unmute.
2: Uh, I'm driving, Rabbi, but I have a
0: comment when I get there. Bye. Oh, okay, so if-, if uh, <laughs> I'm if, here, if, Rabbi, okay. I'm Aileen.
2: here. Good, mean, yes, we'd love to hear from yeah, you. Yeah, I wish I could articulate how, um, where I stand in this. As you presented things, I said, yeah, I agree with that. Or yeah, I agree with the other one. And yeah, I'm probably the one in shul who goes <laughs> to be next to the guy with the book <laughs> and talk to. It's yeah. just, and sometimes I feel like I have the same philosophy I had as a 10-year-old. Um, and I'm still when bad things happen to good people and all of that. So I think what's remarkable for me in Judaism is our ability to have discussions like this. And that I think, um, I think that pleases God.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Eileen, for that. I love that. I love that. And you know, to go back to the synagogue politics for a moment of both sides, there are people who adamantly believe The sanctuary should be a quiet place. We're here to pray. Get the people quiet. The rabbi should quiet down the people who are are schmoozing. Kick the kids out of the room. Go put them in the kids Mm. program. This is a place to connect to God. I know other people think the sanctuary should be a loud place. If people want to talk, that's what they're here for. Let them talk. The kids should be in the room also because this is how they're going to learn what's going on. And I think both of those sides have merit. And different synagogues should have an identity of, of both sides. We should have spiritual synagogues that really embrace quiet, other places that embrace kind of the social dimensions. And as Eileen said, this and this, they're both the words of the living God. Vicky, have you arrived or are you still driving?
2: I have arrived actually just now. And oh, all so I was, you'll, you'll, you'll uh, be our
0: last question. The question and
2: or I, well, no, no, this isn't a question, it's a comment that I just That's will good. maybe throw it out to the group. That I felt that your um metaphor of the hole in the donut. And the hole in the bagel um, was exceedingly. Um, it made me think a lot about things, about what is and what isn't, and what is and what isn't correct, um, and where and where things come from, and the notion of having to have space in our lives. Because I think that's some of it for me, to be able to reflect or to be meditative or whatever is meaning. There's space inside you, space in your head. And that whole notion of space and, and emptiness, I think is part of, of our understanding.
0: I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I was I was debating whether or not to include that. Uh, I, I was this close to cutting out the donut and bagel part because I thought it might seem too trivial. Too trivial. <laughs> um, but, but you know, it's interesting. In, in modernity, we talked about the self, the birth of the self really, and the other. And in postmodernity, we talk about the space between the self and the other, that reality is in the in-between space. So, too, in, th- in postmodern theology, that it's not God and self, but really the, the divinity exists in the space between the, the mm-hmm. self and God. That, that that It's the emptiness, it's the no-thingness where there is something. And that is... Um, that is very profound about how we think about music, pauses, pauses in music, how we think about art, how we think about the Torah scroll, how we think about relationships and social distancing and intimacy, how we think about um, uh, really all of this, and um, uh, and also in meditation of how we think about the gap between the conscious and the and and the, and the unconscious, of how we think about basically that unconscious cognizable space between the known and the unknown when we enter that that, that, um, that space in between. So thank you so much for that. Friends, um, next week, Reform Judaism versus Orthodox Judaism. Oh! Oh! Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> we're be heavy here. Um, of course, um, we're not wishing to minimize one or the other. We're just going to look at the historical debates and kind of what's at stake there um, as always, I delight in those of you who are in the room and those of you who um, also are on the recording side, although we, we would love to move you from the recording to the, to the conversation. So join us over on this side if you can. I know some, many of you have said this time slot is not great for you. Uh, so we appreciate you on the recording side as well. Thank you all for joining us. Have a wonderful day and hope to see you again soon.